0: This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Constance Coleman, president and CEO of the American Feed Industry Association. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CropLife America. Learn about the EPA regulatory process at croplifeamerica.org slash federal pesticide regulation. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with AFIA's Constance Coleman next. The Environmental Protection Agency's high review standards help keep Americans safe. The agency's rigorous review process sets the standard for protecting the public and environment. That's why only 1 in 10,000 pesticides make the journey from the lab to the field. In fact, on average, it takes more than 11 years to develop data for and move fully through the EPA approval process for pesticides. Through federal preemption, EPA keeps millions of Americans safe by setting standards and creating uniform labels and packaging for pesticides. Learn more by visiting slash federal pesticide regulation. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The nation's feed industry is challenged on many fronts, including the supply chain, fuel costs, trade access and foreign animal disease. Constance Coleman says global black swan events haven't made their job any easier.
1: The Russian invasion of Ukraine has put a lot of pressure on the, the grain supply globally. And certainly uh, coming out of um, uh, this past year, uh, we've got some situations in India, uh, some, some production situations where India may be looking at an export ban. Uh, so the, there is a lot of concern about what we're looking at for feed grains. Now, while we don't necessarily import or rely on the Ukraine, uh, the, these, these products are fungible, uh, when it comes to the global market. So it's something that we are concerned about. It's all about the northern hemisphere right now, though, as we look at grain production. We are concerned about what the U.S. situation will be. I think we'll maybe see an uptick in, in some of the prevented planting acres taken. Um, so we are keeping a, a close eye on that. But, you know, there was a, a – it was amazing. And I think, what, four days, uh, Indiana and, and Iowa and, and Illinois got the got their corn crop in. So we are very hopeful that we don't have any major weather disruptions here in the U.S. that affect that. The other thing that we're keeping an eye on is just uh, where uh, the Ukrainian production will end up coming out if they're able to get in. I've heard anywhere from estimates from 50 to 75% of the corn crop. But, you know, between that 50 and 75% means all the difference about whether we see a normal corn supply or whether we see um, a, a short uh, supply for corn. So that's something that our members are definitely taking a look at. And they're also very concerned about, uh, how growers are dealing with some of the increased cost, uh, particularly fertilizer as we're looking at shortages, uh, for this, uh, not necessarily this year, but next year.
0: I've heard a number of individuals say, how did we get here? And the discussion is over the supply chain. Uh, it seems to that there's not one area of our economy that not, uh, that is not affected and one way or the other from either getting the products they need for inputs or delivering their product uh, to their customer. Is the supply chain a challenge for the Feed Industry Association?
1: Absolutely. You know, we have one of the most sophisticated ag systems in the world, but we can't let our efficiencies be our vulnerabilities. And um, I, I think when you look at the recent supply chain disruptions, it really proves that we've got a, a, a long winding road ahead of us before we can hit cruise control again. We did make some progress at our port via the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. We were very pleased to see that that was signed into law uh, on Thursday of this past week. So we're, we thank Congress for that, and we thank the administration for signing that bill. Um, We're particularly, um, uh, for those that ship out of California ports, it's going to, you know, we'll have some certainty that this is going to be possible to have some shipping happening there. We really urge Congress, though, to provide some increased funding. Um, We're looking at about 38 million, a little over 38 million for fiscal year 23 for the Federal Maritime Commission. Um, so this is really fully equipped to carry out uh, that newfound uh, writing and regulatory enforcement responsibilities. Uh, we really want to have um, some of those things enforced against those foreign actors that that are really profiting from those transoceanic cargo shipping um, issues and sending those containers back empty. Uh, and then of course we've also got a um, lot of concerns about rail. Uh, we really need to address uh, recent freight rail car service disruptions. And some of those increased uh, rail costs and get back to that more consistent on-time rail services for a lot of those essential products that we need for poultry and livestock feed. You know, in California, um, farmers may soon be faced with a really difficult decision of having to reduce their herd or their flock sizes. Uh, Particularly in in, in California, we're really seeing that be a huge uh, problem, and we're concerned about it from an animal welfare concern uh, as well. Um, We've there there's we've got um, producers that have inadequate feed resources um, because they're not able to get um, the 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 rail car shipments. We've been looking at three to four week delays, three to four weeks. In receiving some of the unit trains, and that's a big difference from a three to four day delivery schedule. So we are really looking to to, to see if we can get some relief on the rail uh, situation. So as part of the ag transportation working group, we've been urging the Surface Transportation Board to to really resolve this current nationwide freight rail service challenges, and we applaud their their work uh, to to uh, have the rail companies provide some solutions to that we just can't keep making these difficult decisions of who gets feed and who doesn't and our customers need some assurances that they'll be able to feed the livestock and and the poultry that they're raising
0: are you being given some plausible reasons of why there is such an issue in the rail industry
1: the answer is no (laughs) not when you not when you stack it up against the implications of not being able to get delivery of feed uh for those for those animals and 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 farmers having to face that decision to reduce uh herd and flock sizes uh, nothing that compares to the importance of that we understand that there's a lot of demand uh for some of the the cars and and things like that but we really just need people these these companies to to figure out how they're going to be able to get us back to that more normal predictable uh delivery or, or prioritize when we're talking about having animals dependent upon that feed.
0: Of course, we're in a situation now where fuel costs are up, and that's not making it easy on any segment of the transportation uh, supply chain.
1: Absolutely not. We're looking at, going back to my California example, that feed industry has paid tens of millions of dollars in fuel surcharges. And trying to get trucks and drivers, of course, is is virtually uh, it's a big challenge as you have probably heard and everyone has been dealing with. Our members continue to tell us that uh, they have no other options in many cases than to pay anywhere from 30 to 70 percent markup to transport goods via the nation's highways. So we really um, we, we we saw a win in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act from last November that requires uh, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration to establish a pilot program to allow 18- to 20-year-old drivers to, to go across um, state lines. And we also are looking at ways of of reducing tariffs on chassis. So we're short on drivers, drivers, but we're also short on equipment and trucks. So we're looking to see if we can reduce some tariffs on chassis and parts coming from China, adjusting weight capacity regulations, and a number of other things aimed at supporting a, a, a good, sound, reliable trucking fleet. Um, but, you know, the, the shortage of drivers started before the pandemic, and it's just gotten worse since. Uh, I think back in April, there were over 152 loads for every driver out there, and and that's just not workable.
0: So the Ocean Shipping Reform Act is now law signed by the president. But as there is legislation, there must also be regulation to enforce. The Federal Maritime Commission has the authority now to write rules. The question is, what is a reasonable reason uh, for carriers to send back empty containers? How much is riding on the definition of the regulation?
1: Oh, a lot, a lot. And so we're going to be monitoring that that process um, as they pull those regulations together there's got to be uh, a counter to the incentive that these carriers are, are getting to ship those those containers back empty. But we do believe that um, this provides an opportunity to, to hold their feet to the fire and uh, get some of those ports back inland to be loaded with uh, good quality um, animal and, and livestock feed uh, to be able to ship out. You know, this is something that all of us across the food and ag supply chain are are dealing with, and so it's going to have a lot of set of eyes on it. And uh, I think that the the Federal Maritime Commission is going to have a lot of input um, from the food and ag sector on, on when they put that together, because it, this has got to work. Uh, we just we can't be paying 1,000 times uh, the going the the previous rate just to get a container uh, and to be able to get it loaded and shipped.
0: The previous administration spent a lot of attention on trade. The Biden administration, not as much. Uh, but as late, there have been a couple of names that have been mentioned for key positions. At the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, the chief ag negotiator uh, appears the nomination is Doug McCallop. And at the Department of Agriculture, the Undersecretary for Trade and and foreign ag affairs as alexis taylor what are your thoughts about these two individuals and the task at hand for them
1: well we're hoping that those nominations become formal uh, very quickly and that congress moves to act on those two nominations um, at uh, in, in short order uh, because these two positions uh, are incredibly important to our ability to navigate uh the export market and some of the international issues that we that we come into contact with and, and have to address to be able to, to move products. So taking a, a look at the two specific nominees, we're pretty we're pretty happy uh with those two nominees. Doug McCallop has a, a good understanding of what the challenges are in the food and egg uh space, particularly when it comes to export market, his experience um, is, is pretty extensive, and we are really looking forward to having him in as the chief ag negotiator. Uh, Alexis Taylor, of course, is, is a well-known uh, name to many of us. Uh, she has served in the USDA uh, previously um, and also has that really valuable state experience in a state that is right there uh, with the ports heading, uh, heading west, so we're, we're, we think Alexis has, uh, Alexis Taylor has the experience and understanding to, to really be able to help us, um, address some of these international barriers, uh, for U.S. Uh, product. So very happy, uh, to see both of those names floated forward and looking for that formal nomination to come out ASAP and, uh, for Congress to act on it. We need those two individuals in their seats. As soon as possible.
0: Have you seen enough attention to trade by this administration?
1: No, we haven't. The lack of attention uh, by this administration is is really pretty short sighted, and and it's going to create some some real problems for us. In 2021, the U.S. animal feed and pet food manufacturers they exported over 7.5 billion in products. Including um, about five and a half billion in feed and feed ingredients, and two billion in pet food products. That was a 22% increase in value over 2020. So this is incredibly important to our industry. Um, those those exports support thousands of jobs across the feed industry and associated industries. But at a high level, um, we would love to see this administration um, really start exploring market access. They have several initiatives, including the Latin America Economic Proposal, the America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity, I think is the name. Um, it's got a pillar on science-based regulations. It would be nice to see agriculture included in that. We're also supportive of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework to try to counteract uh, China's influence in the region. Um, they have been, uh, ever since we exited the CPTPP, um, and access to all of those consumers in the in the Pacific, um, we, we've been at a disadvantage. Um, and again, though, neither one of these initiatives, major initiatives, include market access, uh, and that is a huge problem. Um, so we are going to be behind our competitors uh, for years until we start getting um, some some movement on that. We don't want to forget that we do have, uh, we made a, got a lot of benefits in the U.S.-China Phase 1 Agreement, but there's still a number of retaliatory tariffs in place. There's still a lot of work to do on China. It's, uh, I know it's, a, there's a lot of uncertainty there, but we are reviewing Section 301 tariffs on billions of dollars of Chinese goods, but ultimately we want to see those listed in hopes that the Chinese retaliatory tariffs on our products are also listed. And um, we do understand that. Also, uh, uh, many people don't realize that China is a primary source for many of the inputs that we use. Over uh, about 70% of vitamins, minerals in U.S. feed products come from China. So there's a need for us to diversify our suppliers of some key feed inputs, which is another reason we would really like to see um, some some more trade negotiation. Uh, free trade agreements, market access considerations on the agenda with this administration.
0: Does the feed industry have a stake and have a play in the push toward climate change, climate smart agriculture, and sustainability?
1: Absolutely. Feed can play a major role in helping the United States reduce on-farm greenhouse gas emissions. But we're never going to hit the mark uh, with FDA's outdated review process. So uh, let me give you an example. Uh, Royal DSM's methane-reducing feed additive, BOVAIR, has been shown to reduce enteric methane emissions by 30% in dairy cows and even higher for beef beef animals. And it's now approved in the European Union, Brazil, Chile, and Australia, but not in the United States. Other countries have been using a lot of different emission reductions technologies like this for four to five years um, and that is putting American farmers and ranchers at a disadvantage for export markets why uh, because on average it takes ingredients with environmental claims such you know uh, such as enteric methane reduction um, several years in FDA's uh, review process because they have to go through as drugs and not feed ingredients Even though they happen, they they are effective in the digestive tract. So we need the FDA to modernize its really what we consider antiquated 1998 policy guide to review ingredients labeled with environmental claims as seed ingredients, not drugs. Um, We can't keep throwing darts at this climate crisis. Um, If we're serious about meeting uh, the U.S.'s greenhouse gas reduction targets. We need to take action now. And I think we have support from many members of Congress, and we appreciate that. Um, FDA and administration officials are eager to work with us. We just have to get this done and across the finish line. so These innovations can, can be delivered to, to farmers.
0: So are there products today that would help livestock operations be more efficient that U.S. producers cannot use?
1: Yes. Absolutely. There are products on the market uh, right now that can have some impact. And we are working uh, through a conservation innovation grant to demonstrate how these products can work. Uh, we're hoping to be able to have these products recognized by NRCS uh, for cost share dollars for farmers so they can try it out. But they can't make any claims on those labels. So they may be out there on the market but there are no claims associated with that that can be tied to it because of the regulatory process that FDA and farmers then can't translate that into their efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But there's a whole lot more products that are out there that that companies are not even bothering to put through the U.S. regulatory process because there's not a pathway for them. And those far outnumber the ones that are out there but we just don't know about them. I have to confess that when the EU is doing something better on a regulatory program than the than the US, I start to wonder what what's happening in the world. <laughs> um, but in this case, they are um, they're ahead of us.
0: Changing to another topic, do you feel that the US government is doing all that it can to protect US livestock herds from disease? For example, African swine fever in swine.
1: You know, there's always more that can be done and, uh, quite frankly, we need to make sure that APHIS is fully, uh, funded. Um, there's a lot of shortages at APHIS that quite frankly, um, are, it's, it's egregious when we think about the challenges we have at our, uh, at our ports, uh, for review to make sure that we keep this, these diseases out. You know, right now we're dealing with avian, high path avian influenza. Um, that is wreaking havoc on the poultry sector. Um, and the, but the specter of African swine fever, uh, has us all pretty chilled, uh, right now to the bone on, on what may happen if, um, that gets into the country. We are spending a lot of time, uh, focusing on biosecurity. The ironic thing is, is I think the feed industry was a little better prepared for COVID. Uh, because we have a lot of familiarity with biosecurity measures and at the same time, the uh, biosecurity measures that we put in place, uh, that we ramped up for COVID is going to help us with some of these animal diseases as well. But one, we'd really like to see APHIS, um, be fully, fully funded and staffed to be able to monitor at our ports. Now, one thing I would say is that the industry has been focusing a lot on biosecurity, uh, we are doing a lot of research right now on how do you decontaminate uh, a feed mill if um, African swine fever gets in. We're working quite extensively with folks to make sure that we can actually monitor uh, feed deliveries, truck routes, movements on and off feed manufacturing sites so that they can produce the necessary records uh, for state and local authorities. Um, in an event something like this happens, our concern is not that we will be responsible for introducing African swine fever, um, but that it may be the feed um, that, that helps it spread. And so we're doing everything we can to to figure out how do we control that and contain it. One thing that I would mention that I think is incredibly important is what is the impact if African swine fever makes it into the U.S. on our export situation? And we need to ensure that our trade regulations at home do not result in our exports getting caught in the crosshairs um, between other countries. So all producers of animal origin products need to be aware of uh, something called the VS164 health certificate. This is a health certificate that's issued by APIS, and we work. We're working behind the scenes to um, address this question because the. The almost all animal-based feed products and pet food and treats are exported using um, APHIS's 16-4 form, and it explicitly states that we are free from a variety of different animal diseases, including African swine fever. So regardless of the animal origin ingredient, including aquaculture, it, it doesn't have to be an ingredient that includes pork, um it did, any of those products would be barred from exporting on it in the event of an ASF outbreak in the U.S. because the form would be invalid because it says we're free of that, free of African swine fever. So our industry really depends quite heavily on trade, as we discussed earlier, to sustain prices, and that this is going to have a huge impact if we suddenly cannot export anything with animal animal origin. Um, so we're asking APHIS, to head off this devastating stoppage that would occur by renegotiating the vs 164 Animal Health Export Certificate with other training partners now. So, again, I want to reiterate, it doesn't matter if it contains a pork product because that form accompanies every single animal origin product that gets exported. So all of those would be invalid and we wouldn't be able to export any of these products. And that's, to our mind, a simple thing to do, but we're just not seeing APHIS move on, on renegotiating that form.
0: Well, Constance Coleman, we want to thank you very much for taking time out of a busy travel schedule to visit with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and today you have the last word.
1: Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to visit with you and, and with your audience. I would say that just like food companies are charting the future of their businesses from top to bottom and setting some ambitious goals, So are we. We know we have the game-changing solutions to help the ag community reduce on-farm emissions, improve animal health and nutrition, and animal welfare. And they have the resolve to get it done, but without a reliable regulatory framework or policy environment that champions animal food innovation, our companies may choose to invest elsewhere.
0: Our thanks to Constance Coleman, president and CEO of the American Feed Industry Association. Our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CropLife America. Learn about the EPA regulatory process at croplifeamerica.org slash federal pesticide regulation. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.